Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, usually a podcast where comics and politics meet, but tonight I'm here to announce a new spinoff show. It's a spinoff show about a spinoff show. Welcome to Deep Space Dive, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. At first, this was going to be like a single episode we were going to do about the show, but Lister interest has been so strong, we've decided to make our own Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast about the beloved series. And I'm joined by intrepid new co-host, Sarah Daniel Rasher, who you might recognize from previous episodes of Graphic Policy Radio. You know, prior to 2020, I'd seen about half the episodes of Deep Space Nine. And from that alone, I would tell people it wasn't just the best Star Trek. It was one of the best TV shows, period. Let the science nerds have their TNG. DS9 is Star Trek for social science nerds like yours truly. And so when COVID hit, I began my first full series watch through of the show. I spend too much time on Twitter because, hi, this is Ilana underscore Brooklyn. You might follow me there. Uh, And I quickly realized that my entire Twitter feed seemed to be watching Deep Space Nine, too. Of course we were. It's a logical show to watch during COVID. It offers, you know, a regular ritual that brings something reliably intelligent and fun to your evening. But I think the reason why so many of us were watching DS9 at the same time is because we collectively yearned to see a group of smart but flawed people attempting to demonstrate good leadership in a system that was far more flawed than advertised. We wanted to see people who were at least making an effort to help, goddammit, and we wanted to believe that a future was possible. COVID also lent itself to rewatch of one of TV's first deeply serialized shows with seasons-long story arcs and just endless opportunities for us to come together and have deep conversations around the significance of the series characters, episodes, and story arcs. And so as Twitter became the home to so many DS9 rewatches, I fell deeper in love with the show than I ever had before. And if I, Elon Eleven, am anything... I am a podcaster, so of course I wanted to podcast it. I've been the host of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet, since 2012. And if you're not familiar with me, in addition to being a critic, I work in progressive politics. I've worked in the labor movement, immigrant community organizing, and New York politics, and bring with me a background in queer theory and activism that has a lot of relevance to the series. And if you are someone who hasn't uh, watched Deep Space Nine before, My pitch to you as to why you should watch and why you should care is if you're into graphic policy radio, then you're someone who cares about the intersection of comics and politics and of fantasy and fandom and politics. And Deep Space Nine is a show for people who are far more interested in thinking about the socioeconomic implications of intergalactic and interspecies relations um, than they are about the kinds of just, I don't know, what comes off to me, frankly, a little bit like uh, science babble that you might get on some other science fiction shows. So if you've ever wondered, like, what is the Star Trek for socialists? And what is the Star Trek for sci-fi nerds? And what is the Star Trek for people who actually want to have a nice, big, rounded conversation about queer theory and economics and all that other good stuff? DS9 is a place to come and have it. So if you haven't watched the show yet, I hope this will get you started checking it out. And as I've said, joining me as co-host is my one of my dearest friends, Sarah Daniel Rasher. Sarah and I met in college and was one of my gateways into Trek fandom. I'll let them speak for themselves. Hi, I'm Sarah Daniel. Um, 
And I am bringing to this a sort of identity as a Trek fan that I'm not sure Alana shares in quite the same way. I first got into Star Trek through Next Generation and Deep Space Nine in high school. Um, and it latched onto it to the point where I was the founder and captain of my high school Star Trek Star Trek club that had a budget and everything. Of course um, you were. So as my interests have moved and I've gotten older, my that part of my identity has stuck with me even when I was much more fixated on other things. Um, it does also mean that I watched most of Deep Space Nine either when it aired or fairly close to when it aired. Um, I learned how to program my family VCR at a young age for this purpose. Um, and I've also <laughs> strategically done full binges of it several times in my life and am finishing a binge now like everybody else in this pandemic, um, partially as a way to keep up with some friends who are also doing so and partially as a way to bond with my fiance with whom Star Trek is one of the things that we share as a couple. Um, and Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek and I have ruined dates by insisting that if Deep Space Nine is not your favorite show, then maybe there should be a second date. Um, <laughs> and it's also just really important to me as a queer person as a recover recovering gifted kid, as a former expat, as an academic, like uh, of the many hats I've worn in my life, um, I keep finding every time I return to the show that I'm seeing different mirrors of myself in it. Um, and I got back into it, as I said, because a group of friends is watching it. And it's also connected me to a younger generation of fans um, and really seeing why this show has such longevity and why people who are teenagers or in their 20s now who are younger than the show itself are discovering it and still finding things in it. And I sort of asked um, the the Discord group I'm on where I am the oldest person, uh, <laughs> you know, what, why they felt it had such longevity. And some of it was just ease of streaming, but it's also that it just it doesn't look or feel dated in the in the way ideas are presented or in the way people talk um most of the politics have aged pretty well and that the existing fandom is just really welcoming so we want to bring some of that sort of community conversation and like what the fans have created and what the actors and crew and creative team have created as well we're going to really focus on what's on the screen and treat everything else as sort of optional but um one of the things that makes this show very rich is that nobody has stopped talking about it for 30 years so that's um what's really important and interesting to me and why i think we have so much to discuss and I'm going to throw it back to Alana to talk about exactly what kinds of things we're going to be discussing here. Yeah, I want to establish straight off the bat, this is not a recap podcast. Go read a wiki if that's what you want. There's really great resources out there for that. Uh, and there's other, you know, many fine podcasts with an episode of the week format, but we're taking a different approach. 
we're talking about the show thematically. Sometimes that means conversations around particular characters or subplots, and sometimes broader themes and ideas, or connections to other parts of popular culture. And um, that is sort of how we're approaching this here. So our other warning before we get started is that this entire show is a here there be spoilers experience. This is a 30-year-old show almost. So we are going into all of our conversations assuming that listeners have either watched the whole show or don't care about being spoiled for what they haven't seen. If you're in the middle of a binge and don't want to hear about season seven yet, all our episodes will be archived. So when you're ready, when you're finished and you're ready to hear Alana ugly cry about the finale. It's true. It's all true. <sighs> and actually, my missing these characters when I finished the finale is one of the big reasons that I was said that we had to go and do this. I, I didn't want to spend more time away. And with that, I'm bringing us together with uh, the, the theme for our first episode, which I think we both immediately knew would be the first theme for our episode. There wasn't even a question. It's about everyone's favorite character. All the boys think he's a spy, the first Garrick episode. We want to note that Garrick is not necessarily your personal favorite character, but he's actually your favorite character. He's one of mm -hmm. those characters that everybody kind of loves and is loved disproportionately to the amount of time that he is actually on our screens, which is why <laughs> when we were thinking about where do we start with this, we start with the character that everybody wants to talk about and everybody wants to think about. Um, and he does span the entire show. He's part of major arcs all the way up until the end of the show. So even though he's not always on the screen, he's always very much part of the story. And he does tend to have an outside influence, even when he's not present. Yeah, it, 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 I, the amount that people talk about and think about him is so outsized, um, although he really did become almost a consistent cast member at how many episodes he's brought back for because of the, the great storylines and potential from the character. Um, and I, I think especially for you and I as queer Star Trek fans, like there was never any question that Garrick had a lot for us to talk about. And, and one of the things that's so wonderful is just straight off of the gate, like the first, the first encounter he has, the first things he had, he has doing on the show, are just magnetic to any viewer. Yeah, he's just. I mean, the first thing we see him do, and this again is the second episode of the series, we see him sharing a meal with Bashir and just shamelessly hitting on Bashir, and so shamelessly that like it's hard to imagine even a viewer in the 90s watching it and not immediately seeing that was going what was what was going on um and um Andrew Robinson the actor who played Garrick and still in his heart plays Garrick um <laughs> who is still he and um Alexander Sadig who played uh Dr. Bashir have been doing like um pandemic radio plays on YouTube of Garrick and Bashir fan fiction because they are so attached to these characters that they just want to keep being them. Um, but he has said that right off the bat, as part of his understanding of this character, his understanding was that he was having these meals with Bashir because he was trying to get Bashir in bed. 
Like, that's not canon. Of course, it's never said on screen. But Andy Robinson has said it so many times at this point that I think that if you're waffling about what inter- interpretation to make, that I am willing to to defer to the actor on this one. <laughs> even the even, you know, Iris Stephen Behar, like if you watch the documentary, it's not clear to me if he realized in the beginning that that's the direction where he was creating the character, but he's straight up saying like, oh yes, that makes sense. And we, the show should have acknowledged this, which I, I think is interesting because um, I, it is hard for us to imagine like what, as the expression goes, what, po- what possible heterosexual explanation is there. But what's interesting with the character being the spy or potentially being the spy is the question of, you know, what decisions is he making as part of spycraft? What decisions is he making as part of his own, um, just like <laughs> humanoid, I should say, rather than human, you know, reaction to another human being? And, um, what, what is the, uh, what is calculated and what is earnest. And again, like the nature of this character is to make you question all of that all the time. Yeah. And one of the things that thinking of it all along as there was a level of intentionality to reading Garrick as queer um, is that it ascribes something to Garrick that is genuine, that however dishonest or duplicitous or just a compulsive liar he's being. Um, He is genuine in his affection for Bashir and later in his affection for Odo and so on. And that because he is such an open book with his emotions for other people, and it goes both ways, you know, he, he wears his contempt for Dukat so strongly, for example, as well, that even though we know he's lying about his reporting of the world all the time, his body language and his face are never quite lying about his attitudes toward others. I think one of the awesome things is just this question in the show of, well, why does the Federation allow someone who may or may not be a spy to just hang out on the space station. And I mean, I think the clear answers for this are is it's better to be able to keep an eye on him than not. And the Federation, you know, regardless of where Bajor is at, the Federation is sort of still playing an innocent until proven guilty approach. But that also is what makes the delightful nature of like the fact that literally Bashir's first question to him is like, so I hear you're a spy. Let's talk about that. Such a wonderfully Star Trek that's such a wonderfully federation, I should say, kind of response to the potential of there being a spy where you've been stationed. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons Garrick is is allowed to stay, I mean, long before he becomes useful, and then of course they keep him. um, You know, uh, by season season four or so, they're just hiring him for freelance jobs. So by then, like... He's a beloved part of the family and, you know, we protect Garrick. He's one of ours. But um, beloved, not trusted, which I think is an interesting needle to thread. And I but I think there's a lot of beloved, not trusted on Deep Space Nine. I mean, Mm. when we start talking about Quark, we'll return to that (laughs) phrase, I think, really strongly. Yes. Um, And I think one of the things that um, Deep Space Nine does really well is show that 
there is a very strong found family love among the central characters of this show, but it's love that acknowledges reality. It's love that acknowledges that um, it's love that acknowledges the limitations of, of each person who's embraced and trusted and cared for. So a question then is what if, what if, what if Garrick isn't actually a spy? Like it could be at the time of the beginning of the show, like it could be presented that it was to his advantageousness to present, to, to, uh, portray himself as maybe being a spy because it would keep Bajorans from like ransacking his store or chasing him off the station where he didn't have any place else to go, right? Like you can see from a protective, protecting himself standpoint, why it might have been in Garrick's interest to be like, yeah, I'm a spy. Don't fuck with me. I know I seem like a vaguely a feminine w- women's tailor, but I'm a spy. Don't fuck with me, Bajorans. Um, but uh, if it, do do we think that um, he is predominantly operating as a spy then? And like, does that, like, what what is your read on that question? My argument, and this is like one of those unpopular opinions and then I voice it and people are, are like, oh, okay. Sometimes I like, it's one of those where it's like, I talk about it and I convert people, um, <laughs> is that Garrick, probably was a spy at some point in the past, but now is no longer, that he still has connections to that world. But one of the things, and I was actually looking for this without even knowing I was doing a podcast on it, as I've been doing my most recent rewatch was, one of my questions was, does he ever really say he was a spy? And he almost always dodges it. There are a few points where he does um allude to time spent working in the obsidian order and things like that but usually when somebody confronts him head on and refers to him as a spy or as an obsidian order operative he really demurs like he really uh, avoids um putting too fine a point on it and um and i think that as you're saying it really is a matter of self-protection that he never Um, closes the case on it, but there's also really no evidence that he's sharing intelligence with Cardassia in any way. And in fact, there's far more evidence that he is sharing intelligence with the Federation, especially past a certain point. So if Mm -hmm. he's a spy at all, he's a spy for the Federation. Um, mm -hmm. Go ahead. I, I, I believe that, you know, he... I believe he was a spy, but he yeah. is obviously actually in exile and estranged from the leadership, the current leadership of the of, of Cardassia. And it's like a terrible and you'll hear me say this in many episodes, I'm sure Cardassian culture is trash. And so there isn't really a space for him to to be. And so the only place that he can put himself is to try to protect himself through selling information in some way or another, but he's not actually doing anything under the auspices of the, of the Cardassian government. You know, I think they're ashamed of him in ways that are also feel queer coded actually. Um, And that he's like trying to exist uh, almost like an information broking situation for his own survival. But I think that, you know, he, he did blow up a Romulan ambassador. Like he was a spy at some point. But I think he's completely on the outs with Cardassia uh, at the time the show begins. 
and um, especially like, you know, even in a fascist government, you've got different political rivals. And obviously we know his alienation from his dad who refuses to be acknowledged as such. Um, And I think, you know, like, but I also think one of the other reasons why he doesn't like just, he doesn't like to straight up give his own status in one thing or another for twofold. One, because he is interested in Bashir and he thinks that dragging out this mysterious mystique thing is indeed part of his appeal, you know, uh, to to him. And also he doesn't want to be entirely recognized as culpable by people beyond himself. Like he's one of those people who's perfectly happy to be angry at himself and blame himself and doesn't need anybody else putting their own weight and blame on him because he's already he hates himself enough so to speak so he doesn't if you if you were going to be honest about like yes i was part of this regime that you hate then that's giving people the opportunity to say you know you committed genocide i mean or other kinds of you know other kinds of accusations that he doesn't want to hear from other people because it's hard and i think that sort of setting up this past and this sense of exile is really much more than scaring the Bajorans with his sort of dubious spy past. What he's doing is creating a sense of solidarity and sort of saying, you know, what Cardassia did to me is nothing compared to what Cardassia did to all of you, but the same system has also screwed me and I'm here because the system screwed me. Therefore, I'm more of an ally to you than I'll ever be to Cardassia. And as much as he bellyaches about missing his home and about his first loyalty being to Cardassia, it's clear pretty quickly that his loyalty is to the sort of idea of Cardassia or to his like cultural and ethnic identity as a Cardassian much more than it ever really is to the current fascist state that you imagine like he was never good at existing in. Because mm-hmm. even though he has a lot in common with the other Cardassians we see, they definitely look at him like, you are not following the rules of our society. You are a person who will never fit in. And that's such a theme for so many of the characters in Deep Space Nine. Like, so many of the characters are viewed as outsiders amongst their own species. Uh, and and different times will sort of have posture towards being like the most XYZ of the XYZ. Like I know we'll be talking about later, like, you know, how uh, how Worf is always trying to be the most Klingon Klingon, even though he's an outsider. I think you have some of this with, with Garrick, you know, you, he's a bastard, right? Like, so he's already unrecognized and not seen as legitimate in those ways. Um you know, we don't really have a clear in in story picture of like what people's treatment in Cardassia is of folks who aren't necessarily heterosexual. Um, and, uh, you know, he he's not like a liberationist type person in general. Like he is he supports a fascist system, but he's not the same flavor as those who are in power necessarily. And so he's politically out from them as well. And it's not even clear that he supports a fascist system per se, um, because he seems constantly somewhere between rolling his eyes and actively angry at a lot of the oppressive stuff that the Cardassian government chooses to do, even when it doesn't directly harm him. Um, 
And so I think it does go back to that problem of somebody who is intensely patriotic and intensely proud of where, of where they come from culturally, but at the same time looks at the regime that is ruling their planet and goes, how, you know, how do I reconcile loving Cardassia and hating the Cardassian government? And that's, I think, something that um, we can, you know, I think both of us can probably, you know, name various friends who are, um, who are immigrants and who retain a lot of their pride and where they come from. But at the same time, they're like, and I'm never going back and I'm really pissed at how things are being run right now. Yeah, um. definitely. But then actually that also was another point of why he's so relatable is that yeah. even though I live in America and I'm not going anywhere, it's similarly like, oh, I love America except for all the terrible things. But where else did we invent comic books and Star Trek, but America, but also fucking capitalism is the worst. Um, so truly we are all Garrick. Although I do want to push back on one thing around Garrick's politics, which is, I mean, he apologizes. He he treats their court system as if it's legitimate. Like he's like, oh, well, I guess I guess O'Brien, you know, we're very thorough. I guess O'Brien's guilty. Like he, there is definitely a lot of norms of Cardassian government that a provincial person, I could excuse them not having considered other alternatives to. But he's highly educated and he's lived abroad and he still is like, yeah, Cardassian, ju Cardassian justice system seems like an actual justice system. So, okay. I, I like him for being, like, I don't want him to be like the perfect icon, icon of like queer liberated politics. Like that's not as interesting to me as him being like, sure, the Cardassian, the Cardassian justice system seems legitimate. Like I, I prefer that, but I also do think that that is kind of where he still is. He's definitely was critical of the occupation, but he's, I don't think he's like coming at it from a revolutionary perspective either. No, I don't think he's coming at it even in, even in season seven where he's, you know, basically trying to overthrow the government. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he is a revolutionary in that sense. It's more, or someone who thinks that all aspects of Cardassian government are illegitimate but the fact that he decries even some of them sounds like it's Cardassian culture is not a culture where you can criticize some of your government. Um, mm -hmm. So the fact that he criticizes some of it is, I think, tantamount culturally to him um, criticizing all of it. And then when he doesn't, it's that sort of irony of like, oh, yeah, right. He's not quite one of us. He's still raised in that society there's still things that from the outside we think are absurd but that's what he was raised and educated to believe justice was and one of the scary things about um being raised in a state like he was raised in is that you know that that like he was raised with that being his definition of justice and so seeing what, you know, spoilers for future episodes is still kind of a retrogressive and punitive and carceral um, federation perception of justice, mm -hmm. but one where there's still some desire for fairness. Um, like that's just like, that's just not the values and the definitions that he was, that he's been taught his whole life to see. So I think that there's a measure of realism there with like, there's certain things that we think are ridiculous, but he is very far from just 
um, drinking the root beer completely, as it were. That is such a good metaphor that the show uses. Yes. Um, I love the specifics, though, of the cultural debates that he gets in with Bashir around like art and reading and all those other things like his his like just not appreciating American or Terran sorry although it's pretty American dominant and how it's talked about in the show um cultural products is like endearing and um I think says a lot about you know also like the Cardassian sense of like their own culture and art as being the superior and uh but god i mean yeah all those books really sound terrible that's how you know that's how you know they that's how you know they must really like each other (laughs) yeah and well well it's you know it keeps going back to one of the greatest pieces of canon that deep space nine created and then could never walk back was that um that cardassians bicker is a form of foreplay so it once you when know did they that create and that? you just watch the two of them together, it's like, of course, they're giving each other the books that they know the other one's going to hate so they can get each other all worked up and then, you know, rent a hollow suite. Wait, so are you implying that you think somewhere out there there's actually a good Cardassian book and it's simply that Garrick refuses to let Bashir read it? Of course. Hmm. And here I was just assuming that all Cardassian art was also trash. Well, when did they initially establish that bickering is Cardassian flirting? Is that something from TNG or? No, it's um, so, okay. So um, God help me. I, my, my accuracy with titles is about 50, 50, but this one um, it's the one where you've got three Cardassian scientists who come oh, to the God, station and They're, one of them yes. is just, hitting on O'Brien, like her life depends on it. She at one point tells him that she is very fertile. Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the sort of kicker to it is that she was arguing with him because she was into him and that's how Cardassians flirt. And oh, that's because where he fought yeah. back, she thought that he was returning her interest. Okay, right. That makes sense from that episode. I really love that episode and I love those ladies. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it also just gives them a pretext of something to, to be talking about regularly that isn't like just Bashir divulging Federation secrets. (laughs) Like, you know, I, um, I think it's an, it's an interesting, like the whole idea that Bashir is really interested in James Bond stuff is something that the show pulls out later in the series. And I think it's interesting because it's almost like, did Garrick have a dossier of things that different people coming to the station were into and was then able to use that to figure out who to approach with things? No, this is clearly the show reaching backwards in the meta way, trying to justify why Bashir is interested in talking with him. Yeah, I mean, from the start, from pa- past prologue, which is Garrick's first appearance, and really one of the first episodes where that starts to figure out who Bashir is. And it really, it's, you know, well, again, spoilers for future episodes of this podcast. Um, the show takes longer to figure out who Bashir is than it takes to figure out anybody, any of the other major characters. But yeah. one of the things yeah. that gets right very quickly is that Bashir will talk endlessly about everything he is interested in. So it's not that hard 
to figure out what to latch on to um, <laughs> with Bashir. Uh, and he also, if you're trying to gather information about the Federation, even if it's not to be a spy, just to figure out how to have leverage and how to navigate in this environment where you're an outsider, you know, you start buying coffee for the guy who will talk for three hours about everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do, I do think it's a deliberate choice that the show made to be like, oh yes. And he's into James Bond like yeah. later on as a reverse justification of like why he approached him. Like, I hear you're a spy. Let's talk about it. I mean, for me, like that was one of the things that made me embrace Bashir as a character it was like, imagine you're the kind of person who like it's your first day on the new space station and you're like I'm going to go talk to that guy who everyone says is a spy. This is good judgment. I'm like I love you. Total disaster bisexual. Um yeah. <laughs> hey, let's not let's not throw around disaster bisexual too lightly here. Um but <laughs> um I think Bashir is just a disaster who also happens to be bisexual. Um we we think. Um but yeah, I think it's more like um, Bashir just more generally being this sort of like xenophile who sees all of his relationships kind of as research projects mm. and um, Garrick kind of enjoys being the subject of Julian's research project in a way that most of like you know seeing for example like Bashir's early interactions with Kira, where she's basically like, please just shut up now, that like mm -hmm. Garrick enjoys that attention in a way that a lot of other people don't and has patience for it in a way that a lot of other people don't. And, and by people, you mean non-Terrans, especially, because I think that that is, you're right, that is a consistent theme. And, um, and the other side of it is, that Garrick's sort of smug, glib, um, I'm going to spin a tale and you get to figure out, you know, where the truths are kind of way of operating in all communication um, is exhausting for pretty much everybody except for Bashir, who sees it as like this big puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of tellingly, the only other character who really finds that interesting and endearing is Odo, who first of right. all, never saw a mystery he didn't like. And second of all, was raised in the most Cardassian environment of any other major character. I, I, I do also want to shout out to the, you know, Andy Robinson's performance, right? Like, he is so charismatic and funny. And there's such an interesting body language that he develops in this that's like mildly reptilian which it makes sense on account of the space lizards, um, which I, I mean, I think that like you have to sort of take them from that perspective as an animal. Right. Um, and uh, the sort of speech rhythms and mannerisms. And I think one of the challenges is that people who aren't into Star Trek sometimes will find that they can't get, they, you know, it's not a net particularly naturalistically acted show. Um, but I think that the specific quirks of his performance in here holds so well um, as being from a different culture, from a different species, and like still reading as queer with that on top of it is like doing a lot and being very and, and very interesting. And, and to do all of that without coming off as being 
um, stereotypical either. I mean, he's a tailor, and yet it doesn't have that sort of like generic laziness to it that it might in certain other kinds of performances. He comes off as very gender nonconforming and very comfortable in his own brand of masculinity without um, conforming to most of this, mm-hmm. the sort of queer stereotypes that the 90s really would have driven home in most queer characters. Um, it's one of those things where it's like he reads almost instantly as queer, but he doesn't do it with any kind of shorthand. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and my last tribute to the, the physicality of the acting is when you see Mirror World, and we are going to be doing whole episodes on Mirror World, when you see Mirror World Garrick and you see him in the Cardassian military uniform and he looks like just 30 feet bigger, well, one, that's when I first really appreciated that the costumes on the show at times were quite excellent. And two, that's performance. He's like, okay, now I'm large and just did it. Speaking yeah. of coping mechanisms, you had stuff you wanted to say on that topic. I did. Um, I'm noting that you're throwing this to me without giving me space to give my no prize head canon for why um, Garrick and Bashir's romantic and sexual relationship is never discussed. But I think we can come back to that as like okay. a prize for getting to the end of this podcast. So we yes. can talk a little more about trauma because <laughs> one of the things that unites most of the primary characters on Deep Space Nine is that they are survivors of trauma who are recovering from trauma in a wide variety of ways. And Garrick is one of the ones with the most obvious and most self-destructive coping mechanisms. Um, and possibly one of the ones who needs those kinds of coping mechanisms the most. Um, there are other characters, see, you know, future episodes on O'Brien, where it's sort of punted off screen with the understanding that this person is seeing a therapist. Garrick is trying to um, recover from trauma without assistance and, in fact, pushing away a lot of the supports that might make him capable of recovering from things that we never really get a clear answer on what they are, but we know they were severe. We know that he is so terrified in enclosed spaces that he basically shuts down, that he has panic attacks that render him incapable of functioning, Um, which that kind of phobia usually is attributable to specific traumas earlier in life, especially because of like the specificity of the trigger. Um, Mm. But the big one, and this does feed back into Garrick and Bashir because all roads kind of lead back there um, is the wire, which is the one where we find out that Garrick is, is addicted to a thing in his brain that um, is supposed to occasionally give him a shot of of happy hormones, but he's had it running continuously since he was exiled. And it's um, a sort of typical Star Trek, slightly too heavy handed metaphor for addiction more broadly. But what sets it apart is it's not a don't do drugs story. It's an especially unusual for the nineties kind Mm -hmm. of approach where it's like, sometimes people's drug abuse has origins in real need. 
um, and, um, and is not just people, you, you know, abusing substances because it's fun, but also because it's a way of, um, managing trauma that they can't find another way to manage. And one of the things that's so wonderful about that episode um, is that it, um, that it depicts the solution and the recovery process as being very slow, that there's like time-lapse sequences where you're just sort of seeing it go on and on and on and how difficult it is to recover from this. Um, and Garrick arguably never really gets better. He just learns how to manage his mental health better or more efficiently or in ways that are less disruptive to his existence. And I think honestly um, that, for, you know, me as a viewer who's, you know, dealt with some mental health issues of my own and certainly talking to some other fans that I communicate with, especially on Discord, that like sometimes what you really need to do is not expect to recover from um, from, from mental health issues, but more to learn how to um coexist peacefully with what your brain is doing so we can kind of see Garrick as achieving that on screen in a way that's maybe not optimal and maybe not what's culturally accepted for a lot of us but by the end of the series does seem to have at least been partially effective you know this episode is one of the ones that really got me into the show in the first place and and one of the moments that got me was when he sort of unleashes on Bashir about, you know, this whole time, if it's too bright in here, it's too cold here. And like acknowledging the ways in which like being from a different species than ever, than what is the norm for the station, like impacts like pain, frankly, and discomfort. And like, how much is your body expected to bear um, and, and how are you supposed to adapt yourself to these spaces that weren't built for you it was a really smart choice for the show to make, to not just assume that we all have the same base level spaces of comfort. And then as, yeah, and as you said, like for a show in the nineties to not be like, just say no. And to also not be about, you know, sending your friend off to get care, but actually being a part of your friend getting care and being active in someone's recovery and being patient with them and realizing that like, there's some shit that's happening that might not be their real choice about how they want to act with other people. Um, and then Garrick apologizing for being a douche afterwards as well is important. Yeah. And I think one of the things that it really points to is that, that being an immigrant and especially being a refugee and an exile is itself an ongoing source of trauma. And we tend to tell immigrant stories where like there's a period of adjustment and then boom, you're an American now when really like for most people, it's an ongoing process and you're never 
there's never quite a sense of being fully where you are or fully where from where you're from. And because Garrick is at least somewhat an unwilling immigrant, um, that that trauma intensifies. So yeah, he's miserable. Um, and he's physically miserable. He's, um, I mean, I know people who have moved from, you know, warm, dry climates to Chicago. And I hear Good similar Lord. things from them sometimes where they're just like, you know, I'm glad I'm here, but it's real cold. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, um, I think that that is one of the, mo- the realest confessions that Garrick makes. Um, and one of the most um, memorable and, and most key points in his sort of immigrant and refugee metaphor. Well, and I know that we have an episode in the future we'll be doing about dad issues where we'll be talking about his dear old dad and some of the sources of those trauma. Um, but we are trying to run a tighter ship perhaps on this show than I have in some of my others. So I'll leave that as a teaser for the future. So before I get to my, my grand, I am not a crackpot theory, which you can of course just shut off this podcast, but you know, that will be a frequent occurrence. Sometimes Alana gets to be the crackpot. It's not always going to be me, (laughs) Um, but we did have a question from Twitter about Garrick that um, for us to English nerds um, is kind of a treat, which is with all of the back and forth of Garrick dismissing all of the earth literature that um, Bashir throws at him, is there earth literature that we think he would like? And I'm of the opinion that there isn't. Because it is part of his personality to perform that he doesn't like human literature, Terran literature. And frankly, like, I, I don't think we need to assume that all species are going to necessarily enjoy or seek pleasure in the same kinds of text or art as others do. Like, it's, I don't get Klingon opera, and that's okay. And I love that in the future, lots of Terrans do love killing on opera. And I think that that is how it should be portrayed. But we're not all going to be there for all of it. And I think like with Garrick, it's even a thing for him that he's like, oh, no, no, your human books are very, you know, in, in, and when, when he talks about what it is that he likes about the Cardassian books that he's fobbing off on Bashir, it's so deeply unappetizing. Um, and this sort of like loyalty to state suffering over and over again cycles like we do have them here, but. I think he wouldn't even be, but I think one that was rooted in a human culture wouldn't be appealing to him, frankly. So. And I disagree, but my take is that first of all, Bashir is purposely baiting him and giving him things he'll hate. Um, (laughs) But also that the kinds of things that I think um, Garak might attach himself to are the things that wouldn't occur to Bashir to hand to him for various reasons. The first thing that came to mind when I saw the question was Garrick would actually kind of dig David Foster Wallace's infinite jest, um, hmm. which is the closest thing 
that we have in English literature to a repetitive epic. Um, and it is incredibly like smug and arrogant on top of that. I think that Garrick would get a kick just out of the footnotes. Um, and the other thing that I think he might at least appreciate, even if some of the storytelling wasn't to his taste, was I, I think he'd actually see a lot of value in a lot of comic books. And I'm including both um, Western and American superhero narratives and a lot of... Um, Japanese oh. and Korean sort of hero oriented manga in that he's, sense no, that he's they're like a sports manga. I, I think he's going to read a sports manga. Yeah. You know, Prince of Tennis. Um. <laughs> that just blew my mind. And I, I actually, I hear you on infinite jest. I, I, I'm not saying I, I, I'm not changing my stance, but I see what you mean for a minute, infinite jest. And now you've totally got me on guiltily reading, shamefully reading a sports manga. Yeah, um, I think that Odo's slipping him sports manga and like really trashy, like Silver Age Superman comics. Hmm. Um, like, like, like Odo, Odo, who is the true literary critic of the show and true. the true reader of the show, um, is the one who like actually figures out what Garrick likes and is like being like, here, dude. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Now I'm thinking of Odo saying "dude" and I'm having my own laugh. You're like, no, but, uh, there's no dude. Yeah, there's um, no dude. I, oh man, I want to talk about Odo in books later. I have so many thoughts. Um, well, I hope that answers your question, listener. And I know that one of our other listener questions was like, "Okay, so it's gay, right?" And we're like, "Yes." This is literally the first statement off of our mouths <laughs> in the beginning of the podcast. Is yes, it is gay. It is very gay. Yeah. Um, Sarah, would you like to share your no prize? I guess we should explain what a no prize is, is for any folks who didn't come in from comics land. But basically in Marvel comics, there um, people would write in to notice that there was an ear, an hour in an earlier comic book, like something that may be contradicted with something that happened in a more recent ep issue of the comic. And so the editor on the comic would issue that person who noticed, not, not just for noticing the consistency, but pro pro for providing a in-story justification for why this seeming contradiction actually made sense, they would be rewarded what was called a no prize, which was literally a, an envelope that would be sent to you with some printing thing on it, and people would save those, and it's a charming little touch of Marvel history. So if you're able to come up with a justification for why two things that are inconsistent actually do work out, really do make sense, that would be called a no prize. And Sarah, I hear you have a no prize heads canon. I do, and I want to preface it with the fact that not only, like, the, is the answer is, is this gay, or at least is this queer? Well, I mean, what else could it be? But that coming when it did, for the generation of fans of this show who watched it while it was airing in particular, like, Garrick is not just queer, that Garrick, and particularly the relationship with Bashir, is formatively queer, and that... I, that sort of viewers who were watching the show as it aired, especially young viewers, like the first fan fiction that I read that I was too young to read was Garrick and Bashir fan fiction. And I developed most of my useful misconceptions about gay sex from reading that when, you know, I was lying and saying I was 18. Um, <laughs> so, and that's true of a lot of, 
um, of a lot of fans of sort of my generation. Um, so if you're new to it and you're, and you haven't been spoiled for that aspect of it, you start side eyeing it, I think, and kind of going, really, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And the answer is not only are you seeing what you're seeing, but we were seeing it in 1994. Um, <laughs> And so as a result of that, I've had to sort of think about, well, if this is so clear to us as viewers, if we have the word of the actors that they were playing this intentionally and that basically the entire cast was in on it, how do we account for the fact that because really, uh, as far as we know, it was mostly production and production level censorship. Um, why is it never mentioned as a romantic or sexual relationship? And the no prize that I've come up with is that they're one of those couples where they're together and they break up and then they revenge date other people and they're incredibly miserable when they've split up and they're incredibly happy when they're back together. And it's just highs and lows and nonstop drama. And everybody on the station has learned to never ask them about their relationship because nobody wants to hear it and nobody <laughs> wants to risk upsetting them when one of them is the only licensed medical professional on, on the station. And the other one is, you know, he can just, you know, bomb you where you sleep. So um, everybody knows it's going on, but nobody brings it up in polite conversation because nobody knows where that conversation's going to go. It also would probably require paperwork and like reporting that folks might not want to have to give on their friends. Yeah, that's something I hadn't considered that also acknowledging that relationship creates such a deep level of sort of professional conflict for Bashir that it might yep. be something that he needs to pretend isn't happening, except that there's such a certain, you know, like every um, opposite sex relationship on Deep Space Nine is pretty much an HR an HR nightmare. HR nightmare. So yeah. it's I think it's really just more like you know I, we've all been in that friend group where there's that one couple that you just don't talk about it because you don't want to know. I'll buy that. I'll <laughs> buy that. No, there's definitely put footnotes that I have about I want to talk about his relationship with Ducat. I want to talk about his relationship with Bashir more. There's all kinds of things. And obviously, we want to all talk about his dad problems and everyone else's dad problems. So know that we will be back to talk about such topics again in the future. Um, and so our listeners, just a sampling of some of the future episodes we have coming up for you. We'll be talking about all those times Deep Space Nine does film noir. We'll be talking about Wharf and Klingon identity. Uh, Afrofuturism in the show, which Lord knows we will not be the primary speakers on. We are bringing in outside guests, of course. We'll be talking about the O'Brien's relationship as a couple. We'll be talking about the Maquis. I really want to talk about Bajoran economic development program um, and like the move from different kinds of agrarian to industrial to cooperative farming systems on Bajor, because that's literally my idea of a good time. And one of our most rapidly upcoming episodes is going to be myself and Sarah joined by my longstanding friend uh, and union organizer, Asher Huey, talking about the union organizing episode that takes place at Quarks. So this is that kind of podcast. This is that kind of Deep Space Nine show. And I hope you're in for the ride with us as we 
spin around in space, in a circle, in a mall, beyond the stars, after capitalism is over. So tell our listeners, where can they find you on the internet? Well, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter as a result of this podcast. So I am Padasha, P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. I promise it is no longer primarily a figure skating Twitter account. You can read my writing about ice skating longer ago and movies more recently at thefinersports.com, the F-I-N-E-R sports.com. And, you know, I have a lot of social media accounts I don't really use. Those are the the main places to find me. Excellent. And as for myself, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. Uh, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. Uh, And I also have my regular podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, of course, um, putting up new episodes all the time, talking with comics, writers, artists, and critics. Um, And uh, so, you know, this is our first episode. This is our first pilot. If there's particular segments you'd like to see happen if there's particular topics you want to see happen if there's particular guests you want me to speak to shoot those thoughts my way sarah we don't have a sign off yet we don't um we're gonna have to talk about that offline next week we promise an exciting wrap-up to the podcast rather than us going Oh my God, we outlined this whole thing except for the tagline. So if you want this show to be a big thing, come and tell your friends to join us at Deep Space Dive. And a shout out and thank you to our producer and composer, David Levin, who is my brother and who uh, is now being thrust uh, face first into all of the DS9 he could ever he could ever wish to consume. Um, so thank him for that. Show your support. And see you next week. Until next week, enjoy your mug of Rex Gino and have a nice, relaxing regeneration session in your bucket. <laughs>